Last Sunday night, um, all three congregations of uh, our College Park Church family here at North Indy and at Fishers and at Castleton all voted to consider the adoption of a fourth congregation in Greenwood. And I'm pleased to tell you that all four congregations, all three congregations rather, voted affirmatively to the tune of 95% for us to embrace a group of people down at Rock Bible Church. And uh, we're now providing pulpit supply around Easter, just after Easter, the uh, church will close. Those folks will come up here. Uh, we'll send folks from Greenwood uh, there, and in the fall, Lord willing, we'll relaunch a, a new expression of uh, the church in, uh, in the Greenwood area. And so we're really excited to see how God will work in and through that. So thanks for praying, thanks to our elders, and uh, thanks for you being a part of this uh, beautiful process. What you need to know is that behind the scenes, there's another story um, that just really is amazing to me. It's just one story of many that I could tell you. At our congregational meeting here at North Indy, somebody said, how have you seen the Spirit lead? It was a great question. I thought about that question that evening later on, and I thought, boy, I wish I could have told this story. Let me tell you what happened. When we considered adopting the church at Greenwood, and this fits into Acts, this is not just a church announcement, this fits right into what we're talking about today. Um, there was a, f a financial need. They have like $1.2 million of debt related to that facility, and the idea of adopting a church with debt plus some of our needs in church budget and the next door mission fund, like those things weren't lining up all that well. And so we were trying to think through, is God asking us to take a big step of faith and kind of what do we do? We want to be wise and careful. And so we asked the folks from Rock Bible Church and the folks from Greenwood if they would make a, 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 a commitment to give a certain amount over the next number of years, and they agreed to do so. That number, though, was still short. And um, with that level of debt coming on, we just thought, you know, we don't know what to do. We talked to our elders about it, and our elders weren't sure. Frankly, I, I don't, we were seeking the Lord to know, is this what you want us to do or not? And around that time, somebody had called the church and said, hey, coming up to year end, I'd like to make a, um, a gift to the church, but I, I want it to be strategic. Do you have any ideas as to where we could give? And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about our church budget, thinking about some other needs, and I, I ended up talking to this person and said, how would you like to save a church? How'd you like to, how'd you like to rescue a church? He said, tell me about it. I said, so here's the deal. Our elders are gonna vote on this, but if there was a couple people who could carry the debt for a year, I'd just own it, it changed the conversation. And this individual said, yeah, I'll do that, and actually I'll find somebody else to go along with me. And so two families stepped up and said, we're gonna underwrite the cost of this debt service for a year, and in so doing, helped save and rescue a church, and brought that to our elders, and we said, you know what? We see the Lord is in this, and therefore let's move forward. Isn't that awesome? I mean, it's just amazing. Now, I share that with you because in the book of Acts, we find that people are releasing houses and lands to meet needs. And as a result, the gospel is able to multiply. And that's just one example, and it's a beautiful example, but I'm here to tell you this, that without the pressure of considering a church in Greenwood, that conversation doesn't happen. You don't clap about what you just clapped about. And here's what I know is true. After being in pastoral ministry and being a follower of Jesus for quite a while, and it's this, that the signature moments when God shows up, like if someone were to say, tell me the best stories of how God moved, invariably those stories come with an enormous amount of pressure. Like, I don't know how this is gonna go one way or another. Every time you share the gospel, you have to deal with pressure. Every time multiplication happens in any way, there's pressure. 
And in the middle of that pressure, there are unique challenges, there are unique dynamics, there are unique things that can happen for good and for not. And this morning what I want to do is help you to see in Acts chapter 6 how that pressure that generates generosity creates an opportunity for priorities to be clarified and for opportunities for people to be involved increase. So that pressure is hard, but it's not bad. We're looking at Acts 1 to 11. If you're here for the first Sunday, we're trying to figure out what does the Bible say about this word multiply? And we're walking through the story of the early church. We're trying to ask three important questions. Number one, what were the ingredients for the missional gospel movement that took place in the early church? What can we learn from those? Secondly, we're trying to ask ourselves, so what's our role in the city, in the country, in the world as it relates to multiplication? What's God want our church to do? And then third, the question is personal for all of us, and it's this, so what is, what's your spirit-empowered mission? The stories that you just heard in the, in the baptismal part of this service, those happened because somebody opened their mouth about the gospel. Somebody came alongside. Somebody declared to people the good news of Jesus. And if you're here today, you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You, you just saw like the signature example of what it means for someone to become a Christian. And my question for you would be, why not you? Why not today? Somebody probably told you the story that you're a sinner and you know that, you need a savior. Someone's told you that, someone's given you that message, and so the question would be, why not, why not come to Jesus today, find hope, forgiveness, and let somebody else take over your life, King of kings and Lord of lords. So, like, that requires individual people like you and me, who are the followers of Jesus, to get engaged in that mission. And this morning what I want to do is to show you in this text how this pressure clarifies priorities, and then also calls people to get involved. So first, let's look at the pressure. We're picking up the storyline in Acts 6, and we're not going chapter by chapter. We're just dropping into particular verses and sections and then walking through them expositionally. But what we find is that chapter 6 comes after some defining moments in the church. If you have a copy of God's Word, or just scroll back a couple pages or turn over a couple pages and in chapter 4 and verse 32, we saw a couple weeks ago the defining mark of generosity of the church, that they are selling their goods, they're, there's not a needy person among them in verse 34. And then in chapter 5, we see that this idea of generosity so took off that people were really excited about it. They were, they were clapping and, woo, yeah, generosity. And then two people came in the church and they wanted to act like they were generous when they really weren't. And that always happens in church. People play church. Well, the problem was Ananias and Sapphira, God wanted the church to know, like, it's serious if you're goofing around playing church. And they got struck dead. So the church went from this moment of, man, look at all the great stuff that's happening to, oh my goodness, we just had two people get killed. I mean, that's, what a, what a swing. Along with this, we see the church keeps growing Look at chapter 5 and verse 14. Here's the language. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So this thing is like taken off. Like it's growing. 
And then persecution comes. So generosity happens, people are killed. Church keeps growing, suddenly now we have persecution. Chapter five, verses 17 to 41, the religious leaders are trying to squelch the gospel and so they arrest the apostles. They're miraculously delivered out of prison only to get arrested again and they're brought before the council. They are warned not to preach in the name of Jesus and they were beaten. So just notice all of the things that are happening and then the text says, Acts 5, 41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day the temple from... In the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. It's unstoppable. That's what happens. So this is an amazing moment of ministry. Just think of all that's happening. Needs are being met. People are being generous. The gospel is being proclaimed. People are being converted. Persecution is happening. Sin is surfacing. And yet here's the gospel still advancing. So at one level, here's the church. There's this frontal assault that's happening but this external pressure is not compromising the church. And then another issue emerges, but this, sign, this time inside the church. And what you need to just kind of mark down in your mind that there's always two pressure points coming at the church. One is external and one is internal. And that's not just true of the church, that's true of your life. External pressures, internal pressures. So we always have to think about both. In Acts 6.1, our main text, where our main text starts, we see that the church continues to grow. So in, those, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the fact that it says disciples is significant because it's not just communicating that there's a growth of the, the number of people, but also this is now a change in language, that they're not just called believers. Now all of these people are called disciples. The, the idea being it's not just the 12, now they're all following Jesus, and in the midst of this great moment of multiplication, like this is an amazing moment, suddenly there emerges this really complicated and loaded issue. Again, 6-1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What's, what's happening here? Let me explain this. It's a big deal. In the early church's ministry, there was a regular food distribution for destitute widows who lived in the city of Jerusalem. These vulnerable women likely had no family, and the church in its benevolence program was meeting their needs. Remember in Acts 4, we had heard that there was not a needy person among them. So it was a commentary on their generosity and their benevolence. So somehow between 434 Acts 4.34, and this text, because of the growth, their ministry of benevolence was breaking. Their administration of it was failing, and as a result, there is this problem with the Hellenist widows. Who are the Hellenists? Well, they were Jewish Christians who were Greek-speaking. They, they came from other areas of the Roman Empire. They weren't naturally born Jews in Jerusalem. So, so think of them, they're, they're, they're Jews, so they're part of the same ethnic group, but within every ethnic group, there's various strata of people. For example, these, these would have been folks who lived outside of Jerusalem. They weren't city folks. Think of them as, these are country bumpkin Jews, okay? Or if you're, 
you know, a fan of the television uh, programs back in the 80s and 90s, think of um, Beverly Hillbillies, okay? So you got a people who are the same ethnicity, but they're living in a spot, and by virtue of who they are, they don't fit. Well, the problem is that this then resulted in a pretty significant church issue. It could have been a problem that was as simple as the fact of the sheer number and size of the people they're trying to care for pressed on their administration of the food, and so therefore things were breaking down. That could have been one issue. It could have been something as simple and yet as challenging as a language barrier. Perhaps these widows didn't speak Aramaic and they only spoke Greek, and so there was a challenge of trying to meet their needs. Or there could have been, and this is probably also part of the dynamic, a cultural barrier that existed, making things all the more complicated. Because while they were of the same ethnicity, they were from a different culture. And as a result, things were complicated. Or it could have also been, if we're maybe not pressing the text too far, that there was some subtle, some subtle viewpoint that these folks were kind of outsiders and maybe viewed as freeloaders because of where they were born or where they were from or maybe some of their culture. So we don't know all the dynamics, but you, you understand this is what human beings, like, this is what we do. Like, this happens. So whatever the cause was, you just need to recognize this is loaded. And I love the honesty of the Bible. Like, if, if you're here and you're, like, not sure the Bible's legit, I just want you to know, like, the Bible highlights key leaders and key problems and is just brutally honest about their warts and their failures. I'm not trying to make heroes of humans. They make, the Bible makes Jesus the hero. And so Luke identifies that this is a problem. He could have just said some widows were neglected, but no, he, he helps us understand the complicated nature of this. He identifies that this is more than just a food distribution problem. This is a food distribution problem with a racial layer connected to it. So it's interesting. This, this text isn't about ethnicity or racial issues, but it it's just, it's, it's, it's representative of things that happen in the context of the church. That it's not all about food and it's not all about race, it's about both. And depending on where you're coming from, you come at it from a different angle. And no matter what angle you're coming at it, this is a problem and it's gonna be loaded. This is gonna create pressure. Whenever more people are added, whenever the gospel expands, multiplication always creates pressure points and this is just one of them. The price of impact is navigating our way through more and more challenges. I mean, surely you know, more people means more problems. It means more opportunities. More influence means more exposure. The more congregations we launch, the more exposure we have. That's just part of the nature of it. This is true at every level, just in life in general. For instance, if you're a single adult and you have a roommate and you say, hey, we want to add a third person to live with us, when you add a third person in the mix, you're not just adding another person, you're complicating everything about that living arrangement, times three. Or if, um, if you're a parent and you have two children and you found out recently that you're pregnant and going to have a third, man, that's awesome. Just fair warning, three is not two. I'm just saying, right? <laughs> So you went from man-to-man -man defense to zone defense, right? So, and that's a different parental strategy, just, just saying. Your, your little car ain't going to work anymore. So we also have a, the church in 2008, College Park Church, one location, one congregation, 2,500 people. 
Fast forward 2018, congregation 4,300, three soon to be four congregations in the church family. That, that makes a big difference. Last church membership class, 40% of the people in the membership class were non-white in terms of their ethnicity. Praise God, I mean, that's awesome, right? Amen? And then with that beautiful diversity comes challenges, comes important things that we gotta think through. Changes how I write sermons, changes how we think about all sorts of things, and rightly it should. Every time we launch a new congregation, there's increasing pressure. Every time a small group multiplies, it creates pressure. Every time that people's needs grow and we try and meet those needs, there's challenges. And the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter how big or how small people's needs aren't going to be fully met. There are people who are going to feel hurt, even neglected. And what we have to do together is to be able to face down those issues, even though we know those things could blow up right in our face. So as we start into this text, I just want you to mark it down that the kind of pressure that's in the book of Acts is normal for the life of the church. Like, if you have three children, and they're all under the age of like seven, you should be stressed out, right? If you're not, something's wrong. Like you don't know where your kids are or something. Like you're, like, you should, so, that, so normalizing that is really important and helpful because some people, they have this idea of church that church, that the ideal church should mean no pressure, no conflict, no uncertainty, no gaps, no fear, no sin being revealed, no communication breakdown, no risk, and no racial tension. That's church, that's not church. It's fake church. That's pretending that everything's okay because underneath is this constant cauldron of the human heart. So multiplication, by definition, is uncomfortable. So as we multiply, I just promise you, you're gonna feel some pressure, and I just want you to realize that pressure is really good. Now, elders and pastors have to decide what's too much. It's not just multiply like crazy. But the reality is, is there's some of us that we're so afraid of pressure, so afraid of risk, that we don't, we don't take steps that we need to. I mean, come on, if you don't wanna get in a car accident, just stay at home the rest of your life. Every time you get in a car, you take a risk. If you don't wanna feel the uncomfortableness of talking with somebody about the gospel or, or having them ask you a question that you don't know the answer to, then just never share your faith and you'll never have that and you'd fail at the core mission of the church and your role as a follower of Jesus in the world. So this thing of pressure is part of what multiplication is all about. Secondly, there's the issue of priorities. So this, this pressure of multiplying now creates opportunities for clarification. And the reason for this opportunity is that the issue that emerges in chapter six and verse one, it has to be addressed. So, as we walk through this thing on priorities, please do not hear me saying that this doesn't need to be addressed. This problem had to be fixed. But the issue is how, that's the key. Because there's a temptation for ministry leaders to bounce from one thing to another because now, oh my goodness, we have widows who feel disenfranchised, who are hungry, 
and it's a racial issue, and so we go all the way from this all the way to that. We drop everything and only focus on this, and the temptation is not only for an external pressure for the church to negate its witness, but listen, there's also an internal pressure for the church to get distracted in the midst of meeting really good needs and forgetting what the central mission of the church is. Let me explain. Look at chapter six and verse two. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And then Acts 6, 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So what do the 12 do? They wisely gather all the disciples and say, look, there is a problem and we have to fix it together. And while they realized that the problem with the Hellenists was a really important issue, they refused to allow it to diminish the central function of the church's mission, which is gospel proclamation. Hear me. They knew that if they jumped in and fixed all of the problems with the widow distribution thing, that the prioritization of the word and prayer would be neglected, and if those two things fail, there's no platform to be able to meet widow's needs anymore. It's not that this thing is more important than the other, like this is more valuable than the other, but it is that this is the primary calling of the church, which is to declare the message of Christ and him crucified. So somehow they had to find a way to be able to do both. That's the tension, that's the problem, that's the pressure. Now, sometimes you read this text and the apostles get a bad rap. They say, it's not right that we should give up preaching to serve tables. It almost sounds as if they're above serving tables. But that's not the case. The point of this text is that they can't give up preaching. That's what's not right. It'd be fine if they could do the table thing and preach, but in this situation, because the scale or something of it, they, they couldn't do both. And they probably were doing both. But now they realize, we, we've got to figure out another way to be able to address this. The challenge, church, is one I'm sure that would sound familiar. It's loaded, not only because of the racial piece, but because of what would be said about these apostles. I, I don't think it would be adding too much for me to say that I could predict how this would sound. Frankly, because I've, I've heard this thing before. In, I've been around church long enough, and I, I know what we would say, what people would say, and they would say something like this. If the apostles cared about people, they'd stop spending so much time preaching and start getting in and serving tables and meeting widows' needs. If a widow isn't getting food, then you apostles ought to stop spending so much energy doing these other things and start caring for hungry people. So you ought to care about hungry people as much as you do about preaching. That sound, does that sound familiar? It should, or at least theoretically. And what happens is a false dichotomy gets set up. It's either or. Now again, this is not to say that the issue about the widows should be ignored. It can't be ignored. But there is a huge temptation for leaders to jump in and fix a problem that then accidentally causes a deterioration of the church. The widow isn't getting food. Somehow this has to be fixed. So what the apostles did is wisely they reminded people about the priority of prayer and the ministry of the word. Why are these important? Well, because we saw earlier that prayer is the fuel for gospel ministry. It's the means by which the Holy Spirit of God helps us. It's the means why God, it's the means how God empowers us and works in us. And then in week three, we learned that the gospel spreads through words. So these two ingredients are essential to the life of the church. And for that matter, not just the official church, they're essential in your life. 
Because this isn't just a corporate church ministry issue, this is also a personal issue. In your, in your life, when the pressures of life and meeting needs are happening and all the things that you're doing, is it not true that your prayer life and your time in the Word or your declaration of the Word are the first things that go? It's so easy, you're so busy serving, so busy investing, so busy doing all these things that the core reality of what it means to be a person who lives on mission begins to be neglected. Just in full disclosure, I, I know this tension really, really well. And it's hard, it's hard to write a sermon, spend time in prayer when controversies are swirling or when people's expectations are not met or they're disappointed. None of our elders have gotten involved in church ministry just because we love the church. We love people. And when people are hurting, we're hurting. And we want to go and fix those needs. But the challenge is, is that sometimes we can do that to such an extent that we end up sacrificing the core reality of what, what makes the church the church. A friend of mine puts it this way, the power of no is in a stronger yes. And what happens is that multiplication reveals not only these gaps, but also provides an opportunity to remind us, now what's What's our priority? And pressure then serves to clarify those priorities. Nobody in the tank who was just baptized comes to faith in Jesus without someone talking to them about the gospel. And yet you can be so busy caring for needs, meeting things around you, starting things, all of the periphery things of the ministry, all of which are good, but they're bad if we don't do the central thing, which is telling a person, you need hope, I have hope, it's Jesus. Let me introduce you to him. That's how church becomes ingrown. And the pressure of multiplication both reveals and strengthens our priorities. So third, people. So we got pressure, priorities, now people. So what's the solution? So what do they do? Look at Acts chapter six and verse three. They say, therefore brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So they take it essentially to the gathered congregation and say, we gotta fix this together. But it's our problem together, all of our problem, not just the apostles' problem. Nobody could sit there and say, wow, you guys figured that out. That's why we have you. You're the experts. What happens is they, they sought godly, spirit-filled, reputable, and wise leaders who could handle the problem. Here's what they believed, and this is so important, this is foundational. They believed that the needs in the church could be met by the church because God had already supplied the people in the church to take care of the church. That if there's a need that surfaces, that part of the grace is that there are other people who can step into the gap, we just gotta find them. They're there, God hasn't given us more than what we can handle, we just have to figure out where those new leaders are. Interestingly, in verse five, we see the list. And you know what's fascinating about this list? In fact, it's genius. Every single name here is a Greek name. So they appealed to the people who were Hellenists themselves, and they said, brothers, you're Hellenists. These are widows. You understand this issue. Help us fix this. And they commissioned them, put their hands on them, and appointed them to this task. Some people think this is an early form of diaconate ministries or deacons. It's not the official office yet. It seems as though it's developing in the early church. The point is not about the office. The point is about the wisdom of engaging people in order to try and fix this problem. Listen, there is a temptation when pressure because of multiplication happens for people to either misunderstand, for them to be offended, for them 
them to make assumptions, draw conclusions. They have a spirit of leadership needs to get in here and fix this. So these leaders needed to solve the problem, but the issue was how. Do you know how important these seven men were? These seven guys, like they, probably too strong to say they saved the early church, but man, they served the church really well. By stepping up, they took a volatile issue and they did two things. They solved it so the apostles could stay focused. They did two things. They solved the problem so the apostles could continue the external ministry of the church and maintain their priority of the word and prayer. So I was thinking about this as I was writing this sermon, and I just realized on Friday morning when I'm cranking out this sermon, I'm realizing without the help and support of my fellow pastors, I would not have the privilege to sit here and to figure out what I'm gonna say to you right now. So this sermon is not just my thing, it's their thing because they're doing their thing so I can do my thing. And for that matter, because of the fact that we have amazing people who have greeted folks when they've come in, folks who've helped with parking, folks who are in our next steps area, folks who help in, a, in accounting, be sure everything's, the money's all counted correctly, children's Sunday school workers who are right now explaining the word and taking care of your kids, folks who are thinking through safety and security, a whole medical team that jumped on a medical situation between services, like all of those things, every single one of those people who are involved, and every time you're involved in this ministry, you share in a percentage of what's happening right in this moment. Because if you don't do those, we can't do this. Doesn't happen. Our elders can't serve, our elders can't effectively lead and shepherd, and so the beautiful thing is, is that as you engage in ministry, you not only solve issues, you actually platform the important priorities for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom. That's amazing. It's so important. Let me give you a real practical example. Tracy and Jody Brown came to College Park in 2014 after coming to a THINK conference. They stayed, and they are presently serving in our children's ministry area. Next gen, Tracy is a teacher, and Jody is a small group leader. Each week they teach and facilitate the word of God. They speak God's truth into the lives of children. How awesome is that? They live in Greenwood. You know where I'm going with this. <laughs> so they have felt a calling to reach their neighbors. The challenge is, is they drive up here every Sunday and have done so joyfully since 2014, but when they invite a neighbor to come to church, there's no way that neighbor's gonna come with them. There's just no way. It's 45 minutes to go to church? What are you, crazy? Yes, but they're not gonna do it, right? They're not. So when they hear about Greenwood, they've decided they're committed, they're gonna go, and praise God, they're going. They're gonna be significant senior leaders in the establishment of a new next generation ministries in the area of Greenwood. And so at one level, we're absolutely thrilled. That's awesome, that's the way it should be. And on the other hand, we're sad. Because the reality is, is we're lo losing really, really good leaders. I mentioned this example, I heard two or three others just in the last two hours person who serves in tech serve, top-notch person, gonna do it as well. So the question then is this. Who has God already called in our church to fill the gap of the Browns? Notice the assumptions in there. I'm assuming that if God's calling us to multiply, I'm assuming if God is calling one person to leave, he's also calling another person to step up. That's an assumption, and I don't think, that's not a recruiting ploy. I think that's true 
in terms of the gifting of the church. So the question isn't to me who is gonna fill that spot, it's how many are gonna try to fill that spot, that's the question. Because I think that God has already provided everything we need. Let me tell you what happens in the ministry practically, just kinda let you underneath the hood, what happens here every day if that need doesn't, isn't met. Our staff, because those needs aren't met, will have to spend multiple meetings, hours, thinking, strategizing, talking, praying, how are we gonna fill these holes? We'll, we'll engage other leaders, we'll do so joyfully, we'll ask them to help us, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the value of a pulpit announcement, because after all, pulpit announcements solve all recruiting problems. <laughs> If the need continues, what will happen is we'll, 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 start to, we'll start to wonder like what's happening and then if, if the gaps aren't filled, it won't be long until some people will say, hey, should we even be doing Greenwood? And maybe we shouldn't. But not if there's already people available who just haven't stepped in and then that could lead to a conversation with our elders about timing and pacing. And all of those conversations we're happy to have, but in some cases, they're absolutely needless. We don't have to have those conversations, or maybe even better, we shouldn't have those conversations. And then all the while, here's what will happen. Our staff will have to fight against the temptation to spend more and more and more time thinking about recruiting people and solving a problem rather than spending time in prayer and the ministry of the word trying to reach people with the gospel. And I'm telling you, that's not theoretical. That happens. I've been guilty of that. Our staff have been guilty of that. The pressure of what's right in front of us causes you to have hurried or neglected prayer times or you're just trying to crank out a sermon instead of time spending with the Lord saying, God, what do you want me to say to these people on Sunday? So what's the solution? Ideally, it would be that we as a church understand that multiplication creates a pressure and that when folks like the Browns leave, we not only say, man, that is awesome for you to do that, who also say, that's awesome, and as you do, I'm gonna fill your spot and try and help. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why we started the whole idea of planting churches in the next door mission. It was so that that pressure and that thought that this conversation happens on a regular basis. And it's because we think that there are people in the city who need to be reached with the gospel. And the most effective way to do that is by having more churches. There are not enough churches in our city. There's a lot of churches, but there's not enough churches to reach the number of people today who have no idea that they're lost and on their way to hell. So our aim to plant churches isn't about extending a brand, it's not because we think we have it all together, it's not any of that, honestly, all it is is this. Look, we have the opportunity to send people, we ought to, and if a church is hurting and we can adopt them, we gotta know why we shouldn't do that. That's, that's the lens. If we wanna see the gospel advance, then we have to multiply. We have to multiply disciples, we have to multiply small groups, we have to multiply adult Bible fellowship groups, we have to have churches that multiply because the word of God spreads through multiplication. And the better we are at multiplication, the more important it is for us to be deeply committed to some core priorities and for an entire congregation of people to say, you keep doing what you're doing and we're all in. Don't worry about this, we got it. We'll solve this problem. Keep proclaiming the gospel. So, pressure, priorities, people. Notice finally what happens, power. Verse seven, look at the effect, it's unbelievable. I love this, I love how Luke does this. And the word of God continued to increase. I love that, because that's what it's about. It's about the word of God continuing to spread. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 
So there's, there's more and more people, more and more things that are happening. And then notice this, verse 7, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Don't miss that. That's, that's miraculous. The priests, the religious establishment, they're the ones throwing apostles in prison. They're the ones conniving for the crucifixion of Jesus. They're the ones telling disciples, don't preach anymore in his name. They're the ones, the establishment, are beating the apostles, telling them, stop talking about Jesus. And the gospel is subversive in its effect in the fact that priests, priests are coming to faith in Christ. The gates of hell are not withstanding the assault of the gospel, that as it's multiplied, as the word of God increases, as the pressure increases, and the people are committed to priorities, and they get involved in the context of ministry, the gospel spreads, and literally the gates of hell are falling in front of them, and unbelievable conversions are happening, because when you combine all of this, it is a powerful, powerful tool in the hands of a sovereign God who has many people to reach in the city of Jerusalem. And do you want to clap on that? So go ahead. My staff tells me, you don't give us time to clap, so just stop for a second. Let us, let us say yes, amen. And here's the deal. Indianapolis has people that God wants to reach with the gospel. And I'm just saying we ought to embrace the pressures that come with that. We ought to take the risk do it wisely, but there's gotta be risk involved because the city of Indianapolis, the neighbors in Brookside, unreached people groups around the world need the gospel. And the questions that we have to ask ourselves is this. What is our role? What's my role? What's the elder's role? What's your role? You heard at the beginning of the sermon about two families that said our role is to help fund a debt service so this church can actually happen. They saved the church. Hey, that's unbelievable. Or somebody who steps up and says we're gonna help and fill the gap with the Browns. It's awesome. Or step in and say, look, I'm good at technology. Any way that my skills can be used. However it is that God has gifted you, to be able to ask yourself the question, could I be part of the multiplication effort so that I could use my gifts and the kingdom of God could be advanced? Church, priorities are tested in the pressure of multiplication. And I'm just asking us, let's pass that test. Let's pass that test. Lord Jesus, you have placed us in this city and in this moment in our church's history and we want to be not just faithful stewards, we want to be those who maximize the opportunities that are in front of us. So Lord, would you raise up and unleash an army of people who would see the needs that are around them as their moment, their defining moment to be a part of the overall ministry structure of what you're doing to advance the gospel. Give us wisdom, we need it. Give us insight to not be presumptuous, but also guard us from fear, pride, all sorts of things that could stand in the way. We want the gospel to go forth, so 
Lord, do it, and then give us faith to believe when there are gaps and even when we're afraid. And then, Lord, today for those who are here who just simply haven't crossed the line between what it means to be an unbeliever and a believer, I pray that even now they would be strangely attracted to this message of Jesus and would come, come to faith in Christ today. So, Lord, help us, move us, empower us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.